They spend all of their days in the book of Daniel and the minor prophets and in Revelation seeking to find and glean about these doomsdays. They're looking for locusts, which actually represent to them helicopters in the Middle East and all of these various things. And this is what the churches are centered around. And out of these churches, sometimes, every once in a while, comes somebody who, with a spirit of dogmatism, decides to step up and declare that they know the exact date of when Christ is going to be coming. Despite the fact that in Mark 13, 32, and in Acts 1, 7, Jesus says, no one knows, not even Jesus while he's on earth, knows when the, second man, when the man, Son of Man is coming back. I think that's pretty clear, and yet every couple of years we hear about some nutcase, and yes, they are a nutcase, and, but they have many people following them, determining exactly when Jesus is going to come back. And so the second coming has fallen on hard times because of these theological issues. I'd say more importantly, though, and worse is the fact that the American church and the church in the West in general has become so materialistic that we simply just don't care. Our life is too easy. We live in a world in which, frankly, we would... There are things we would, we would be like, God, if you could just let me get to this point in my life, if I could... If you're 16 and you could just go, God, if you would just let me get married and let me have a couple of years of married life with all of its benefits, then you can return. Because I don't want to miss out. Or God, I'm about to hit retirements. Would you please let me enjoy my retirement before you return? These are the thoughts, and I think they're there. Or simply, it's our just lack of care that reveals it, about the, or care about the second coming, that we're not excited about it. Because our life here is too comfortable. We're far too focused on how we can get comfortable here, or the place that is not our permanent home, or at least the place that is the old home, that there is a time and a place in which this home will become and may be made new. But Christians don't often think about that. We're thinking simply about life now. This is a serious problem. But the third, and perhaps I think, though, the most important reason why the second coming has become unpopular and fallen on hard times is because we don't like the idea of judgment. And by that, I mean we don't like the idea, we don't like talking about it because we don't like other people's judgment of us. Some of us are very offended by the very notion of it, though. So there's some who are offended by the notion that God would come and judge you. Some of us are offended by the notion that we would have to talk about the God who judges, and then other people will judge us for talking about the God who judges. That's the place where I'm at this morning. So that's what we're going to talk about, though, this morning, the nature of God's judgment when he returns. The clear proposition, articulation of the Apostles' Creed is that when Christ comes again, he will judge. Three points for you, a hat rack for you to kind of go about this morning. The first is this, where we're going to start is this proposition is that Jesus simply must judge. He simply must judge. And here I simply want to talk about the the fact that God's judgment and Jesus' judgment on his second coming and his return is it's absolutely necessary. And it's necessary for three reasons. Well, there's many reasons, but I'm going to give you three this morning. The first is this, because his holiness and his perfection demands that he judges sin. Divine judgment is a requisite response to the seriousness of sin against a holy and perfect being. When you lessen the penalty for a wrong, then you have made the wrong less serious. And in fact, the person wronged is now less serious. You devalue the person who has been injured. So if you live in a culture and a society where if someone murders another person, all it involves as a crime and punishment for that murder is a $100 fine, you are devaluing not simply the seriousness of the act, but you're devaluing the person who was murdered. So while the murder of an innocent child gets you a more deeply terrible sentence than the murder of somebody 
like an adult's. Therefore, when you lessen the penalty for sin, you lessen the seriousness of sin, and you lessen the value of the person being sinned against. And when we sin against God, you are sinning infinitely perfect being. His perfection and his holiness have no end, and therefore the judgment and the consequences of our sin are infinite in their nature. That is a hard truth. But that it revolves and comes out of the character of God. He is infinitely perfect, and therefore his wrath and his justice are infinitely perfect, and therefore the punishment and judgment upon us is infinitely perfect. That's the first. The second is this. And the word I want to spend the most time on, I think I can get a lot of traction even if you don't necessarily know the Bible on this one, which is this, is that the just, justice cries out for God's judgment. We would prefer it... Yes, even us Christians who even hold to the proposition of a judgmental God, we would so prefer it that God was not a God of judgment and wrath. It would be a lot easier for us in evangelism, wouldn't it? In some ways. I think the spirit of our age and sentiment of many in our affluent majority culture in the West is well articulated, though, in the character uh, of, a, of a girl named Kate in a, the novel Original Sin. It's a novel by a guy named P.D. James. And here's what Kate says. And she's speaking to a Jewish colleague Listen up to this, what she says. There were a dozen different religions among the children at my school. We seemed always to be celebrating some kind of feast or ceremony. Usually it required making a noise or dressing up. The official line was that all religions were equally important. I must say the result was to leave me with the conviction that they were equally unimportant. I suppose if you don't teach religion with conviction, it becomes just one more boring subject. Perhaps I'm a natural pagan, she said. I don't go in for all this emphasis on sin and suffering and judgment. If I had a God, I'd like him to be intelligent, cheerful, and amusing. End quotes. This, I think, communicates the very nature and the spirit of our age. Kate articulates what we would prefer God to be. We would prefer God to be a very smart, professorial sort of guy in a cardigan. We would want him to be cheerful and to have a sense of humor, enough to look down and be amused by all the failings of these humans who just can't seem to get things correct. He'll laugh at our genocide. Well, in the novel here, that's exactly how Kate's colleague responds. responds. Jewish, Kate's Jewish colleague responds to her sentiment and the sentiment of this age in this way. He replies, I doubt whether you'd find such a good God, such a God very good or much of a comfort if you and your family were herded into the gas chambers. You might prefer then a God of vengeance. The tone and tenor of Psalm 7 that I read for us at the morning, at the beginning of our time this morning is a righteous man crying out for justice. This is a theme that cannot be missed in the scriptures, all throughout the scriptures, but in particular in the prophets, in which the poor and the impoverished and those downtrodden, the widow and the orphan, the minority and the immigrant are crying out for justice, yes, even in the land of Israel. And justice is something that is not simply important to God, but it is important to us. We cry out for justice if we have experienced severe injustice. But for the majority of us Americans, the need for justice is simply just not there. It's not on our radar screen like it is for others in this world. We live in the, the cushy suburbs of our middle-class worlds. But what if you lived in a war zone? What if you lived in South Sudan or in northern Iraq or in Syria or in the caste system in India? Would you not care for a God of judgment and justice then? Out of college, I spent a year in Sarajevo, Bosnia, 
the, the, the place there in former Yugoslavia, the, the home and the center of the Balkan Wars where there was a three-year <clears throat> battle there around that city. And this week marked the 20th anniversary of what is known as the Srebrenica Genocide. Where in the course of about 24 to 48 hours, the Serbian army took 8,000 men and boys from the city of Srebrenica and slaughtered them systematically. Listen to what Miroslav Volf, who is a Croatian theologian who lived through the Balkan Wars, says. And he is a man who wants to push the practice of nonviolence. He believes Christians should not take up arms. But he says this, the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance. He says, my thesis will be unpopular with many in the West, but imagine speaking to people, as I have, whose cities and villages have been first plundered, excuse me, and then burned, and then leveled to the ground, whose daughters and sisters have been raped, whose fathers and brothers have had their throats slit. Your point to them, we should not retaliate. Why not, I say. The only means of prohibiting violence by us is to insist that violence is only legitimate when it comes from God. Violence thrives today secretly, nourished by the belief that God refuses to take up the sword. It takes the quiet of a suburb for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence is a result of a God who refuses to judge. In a scorched land soaked in the blood of the innocent, the idea will invariably die like other pleasant captivities of the liberal minds. And he's not talking politically, he's talking theologically. If God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make up a final end of violence, that God would not be worthy of worship. What he is saying is this, is if you talk to people who've lived in war zones and have lived through that kind of injustice, who have seen the slaughter of their children, do not say to them, there is not a God of justice and a God of judgment. It does nothing. It will not keep them from taking up the sword and carrying out the same retribution that others have carried about against them. No such moralizing, Wolf goes on to say, will not touch their hearts. It shows no concern for justice to say such things. Anybody who has been wronged, Anybody who has been wronged in that way, like that says justice has to be done. It has to be done. And Volso says the only resource he knows strength powerful enough to pacify the human's desire for justice, our internal innate desire for justice, without us taking up the sword and seeking violence, a cycle of violence and bloodlust, is to say that there is a God and there will be a day in which he will return and he will make everything new by judging this world. Wolf goes on to say, like I repeated just a second ago, that a God of justice and a God of wrath and a God of judgments, if he were not so, he would not be worthy of worship. He would not be good to those who have endured such injustice. That's your second reason why it's absolutely necessary for God to be a God of judgments and why he must return and judge. The third is this. I take this point from Tim Keller. Did not think of it on my own, but here's what he says. What he says is the last thing about why we have to have a God of judgment is that we have no sense of purpose if we don't. Our life will be meaningless without a judge, without a standard of success or failure. There is no sense of right or wrong in this world. Therefore, there is no sense of ultimate good or evil if there is no God of judgment. And here Keller quotes from a play by Arthur Miller called After the Fall. And there in the play, there's a character named Quentin who says this. Again, follow along. For many years, I looked at life, this is what Quentin says, like a case at law, a series of proofs. When you're young, you prove how brave you are, how smart you are. Then as you grow older, you prove out what a good lover you are. And then when you have children, what a good father you are. Finally, 
You prove how wise and powerful you, you are or whatever else you take up during the course of your life. But underlying it all, I see now that there was a presumption that I was moving on upward, an upward path towards some elevation where God knows what, I would be justified or condemned by what I did. There would be a verdict of some way, shape, or form about how I lived my life. I think now that the disaster of my life really began when I looked up one day and the judgment seat, the bench was empty. There was no judge in sight. And all that remained was the endless argument with oneself, this pointless litigation of existence before an emptied bench, which of course is another way of saying, I was in despair. What the character is saying there is that he came to believe that there was no judge. And that is exactly what our culture wants. No judge. That is what many of us want in our heart of hearts. No king. And it sets us free. But like an astronaut who has been untethered from the space station, it sets you into the abyss of meaninglessness. Because if there is no judge, there is no sense of right and wrong. There is no sense of determining whether your life has been well lived and has been poorly lived. There is no sense of doing anything that is just or good in this world. There's no standards whatsoever. You entirely make them up of, the, of your own. You are the judge, you are the arbiter, and that is it. But there is no outward, objective meaning, meaning for your life or purpose for your life. And therefore, Jesus must return as a judge because our judgment, our sense of justice demands it, because our sense of purpose demands it, and because God's character demands it. It is necessary that Jesus come and judge in his second coming. I rest my case there. The second proposition this morning in regards to God's judgment and Jesus' judgment when he returns is this, and this is the problem of God's judgment, is that everyone will be judged. No one escapes the judgments. In Psalm 7, the, cry, the psalmist cries out for God to even judge him. It says the nations will come before God and stand before him and he will judge them. It's the living and the dead, as the Apostles' Creed said. All people will stand before God and God will judge them. Now, what people object to, the idea of God's judgments, first thing they object to is the fact that many people maybe object in their heart of hearts, the deepest reason is simply they object to the fact that God is king. They object to the very proposition that there is a sovereign God who has the right and authority to judge them. When I began this series, one of the first phrases is to God the Father Almighty. Now, describe what it means for God to be almighty is that he is sovereign. That means he has the right to rule. And this is what we often despise at our heart of hearts. But more on the surface of the way people object to God's judgment in us would be the fact that he holds us responsible for our actions. Now, no one, I don't think, or very few people would have the audacity to claim that they've never made a mistake or they've never failed in anything or even that they've never even sinned. Most people are willing, the vast majority of people are willing to say that, that there is some sort of failing in their life. But in light of being, but what they have a problem with is being held responsible for those failings. And it's in light of those, those failings, what is the most natural reaction of human beings when we're trying, somebody else is trying to hold us responsible for our failures? We blame. It is as old as time itself. It is as old as the first sin. What did Adam and Eve do? Eve ate of the fruit. God came and saw her and said, Hey, Eve, why'd you, where, why are you naked? Why are you hiding? She blames her husband. Her husband blames Satan. And it is typical for all of us to blame when we are trying, someone is trying to hold us responsible for our failures. And if you listen, we'll hear this everywhere. And we'll hear it come from our mouths as well. 
And there's two objections. There's two ways in which we try to offload our responsibility of our failures. We blame two things. First, we blame our, our circumstances. And second, we blame our lack of knowledge. But what's seen in Psalm 7 over and over again, what is the most often repeated word is the righteousness of God. And that in his judgments and in his justice, he is right. They're not unfair. They're not unjust. I want you to see God's justice and actually the way he responds to our claim of our circumstances and our lack of knowledge being the reason for our failures and our sin. The first objection is that we shouldn't be held responsible for our sin because of our circumstances. That's what we say in our heart of hearts. That's what our culture says. That's what our churches even say. That's what Christians say. The answer we say is why we have failed in some way, shape, or form is because our environment made us this way. It has led us to sin. But the Bible's answer to that is what? God says, okay, I'll simply judge your heart. Psalm 7, verse 9, Oh, let the evil of the wicked come to an end, and may you establish the righteous. You who test the minds and the hearts, O righteous God. God looks through the circumstances, to the heart of who we are, the deepest part of our desires. 1 Samuel 16, 7, when Samuel's trying to find a king for Israel, it says this, God says this to, to Samuel, For the Lord sees, not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the hearts. Now, very quickly, let me ask you a question to make sure we're not thinking wrongly here. Does God bring your good and bad actions, your works and your hate, your behaviors into account in his judgments? Yes. Romans 2.6 says he will render to each one according to his works. Psalm 7.14, David says this, Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief. He is pointing out there that that there are evil actions that God must judge, not simply evil intents. There is a classic passage in Matthew 25 where the dividing line between those who go to heaven and hell is whether you took care of the poor, the impoverished, and the hungry. The actions of people came into play in that judgment. So it is clearly states in the scriptures both that God makes his judgments based on the heart of man, but he also makes his judgments based on the actions and behaviors of man. So which is it? Well, it is both. They are not mutually exclusive. Ultimately, God judges the heart. But what we see is that when God brings us before his tribunal, what he looks at and when he points before us for evidence is he looks and points to our works and our behavior to prove what he has seen already in our hearts. So they are not mutually exclusive, but God judges the heart of man. He sees through our circumstances. He sees through our motivations, and he sees the core of what is in there, of why we do what we do. And this is so fair of God to do this, to judge in this way, and to make it primarily about our hearts. So here's, here's the honest thing. If we are honest about ourselves, much of our good behavior and our socially acceptable behavior and even our obedience is because we had to receive the common grace of having the money and having the upbringing to teach us to shape our behavior and our habits from an early age. There's the man, you and I, we can accuse and we can judge the man who is starving and steals a piece of bread. But who are we to judge when we have never, ever come to that place? The circumstances of our lives, what we see in the scriptures, are the means of bringing out what is already in our hearts. The white-collar crime of the white middle class is to cheat on our taxes. Just a small little way, we'll fudge there. Let me give you two kind of humorous illustrations in the midst of this very serious topic to kind of draw this out. When I was a kid, I was very compliant. 
I was more obedient outwardly than my friends. I was not somebody who got in trouble. I did not talk back to my parents. I was a very, very compliant kid. But I got spanked all the time. Spankings, whoopings, twitchings, whatever you want to call it. You see, here's the reason why. I had three younger sisters. 90% of my discipline was a result of, how shall I put it, poor interactions with them relationally. Now, if I hadn't had sisters, if I had been an only child like my wife, she's not here, she's in the nursery, who never got spanked, I would have received very, very few spankings as a kid. Now, here's the thing. Having three sisters simply drew out, it was the circumstances of my life that drew out what was already in my heart. You probably have the same heart as me. My friends, even my friends who were Sloan siblings, still have the same heart issues I have, and I had. And yet I was held responsible. My actions were more obvious. But the heart issue is there the same. The circumstances brought out my disobedience. But the heart was a problem. Alistair McGrath, to give you another illustration that's maybe more clear, Alistair McGrath tells a story about shepherds in East Anglia in the Middle Ages. <clears throat> East Anglia was the center of the wool trade in the, during the Middle Ages. And when, what they would do with their practice was, was when a shepherd would die, he would be buried in a coffin packed with wool. And the thinking was this, is when Jesus returned on the day of judgment and he opened the shepherd's cassock and pulled him out and made him alive again, that he would see that this man was a shepherd from all the wool in the casket. And that he would understand how difficult and how hard the life of a shepherd was. And how he was always having to chase after sheep who were gone wayward. And so he would understand why the shepherd was never in church. It is showing the point there is that they thought that it was only fair that God go light on the shepherd because of his vocational circumstances. Therefore, circumstances draw out what's going on in our heart, but God doesn't simply judge by our actions. God judges what, what he sees going on deep down inside of us. So the question is, what is in your heart? Do you have anything to be concerned about with your thoughts and your heart desires and your motivations even for going to the soup kitchen? Listen to these two verse, four verses from Matthew 5 from the great Sermon on the Mount, which is terrifying if you actually read it correctly. You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Verse 22, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Verse 27, you have also heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You got something to be afraid of? So we are without excuse because of our circumstances. He sees past them. Second, the second objection that people have about not being, they don't want to be held responsible for their sin, their failures, is because they have a lack of knowledge. Here's the truth. In order to be saved, in order to be escaped God's judgment, you need to hear the gospel and believe the fact that there was a God who came to earth who died for your sins and gives you his righteousness. And the gospel must go out and people must believe it and trust in him and him alone in order to be saved from the coming judgment. That's the truth. Here's how this argument is stated. What about those who have not heard the gospel? You've heard this. What even about those who have never heard the Ten Commandments? Are they held responsible? Are they held responsible for not believing the gospel if they never heard it? Are they held responsible for disobeying God's laws if they've never heard it? Let me give you the flat answer of the scriptures. It's this. is that people will not be judged on the day of judgment 
for not believing the gospel if they have not heard the gospel. And people will not be held responsible for not obeying the Ten Commandments on the Day of Judgment if they have not heard the Ten Commandments. Here's the paradigm in the scriptures. The standard of judgment is this. God judges us, not ultimately by the gospel and not ultimately by the Ten Commandments, but he judges us by himself. Romans 3.23, the classic passage on the fallenness of man says what? For all have sinned. And how does it define sinfulness? For all have fallen short of what? The glory of God. The standard for what we are going to be judged upon is God's glory. God reveals himself. But what we see in the scriptures is that we will only be judged by the standard of the means, the degree to which God has revealed his glory to us. What we see in the scriptures, it is the story of how God is revealing his glory throughout history. He first reveals himself in creation, then he reveals himself through the law of Moses, where we see the glory of God in types and shadows, and then what we see in the New Testament, it was we see the fullness of God's glory displayed in the person and work of Jesus Christ. There are varying degrees of God revealing himself more and more and more displaying his glory. But the paradigm of scriptures is that we are held accountable to live according to the revelation of God that we have been given personally. If we have not heard the gospel, then we are not held responsible for not believing the gospel. If you don't believe me, follow with me here. If you want to read your Bibles, turn to Romans 1. We'll read through verses 18 through 21. And you'll see the standard for which even those, the most backwoods place in all the world that's never heard the gospel, the Ten Commandments, by which they're going to be judged. Verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness, what do they do? Suppress the truth. Verse 19, and this is key, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. This is the judgment of the cosmological argument of God. That the cosmos reveals the glory of God. Simply being a part of his creation and leaves you without excuse. I'll continue on. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Verse 19 says what? What can be made, but God is, what can be known about God is plain to them, and therefore they are without excuse. Let me continue on. To can you give you a proposition for why they're not held responsible necessarily for the gospel and for the Ten Commandments provided by simply the creation? Romans 2, 14 through 16, Paul goes on in Romans to say this For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even if they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. What he's saying there, that even Gentiles who did not have the Ten Commandments and the full explanation of God's laws, they have God's laws written on their hearts, and that is the standard by which they are going to be held accountable. So whether you grew up in a Christian home and heard the gospel every single day of your life, or whether you grew up in the depths of some tribe in the middle of the Arabic or Persian world and never heard the name of Jesus, never heard the Ten Commandments, you are held responsible by some standard because God has made himself plain 
both on the canvas of creation and the tablets of our hearts. That's what the Romans is saying. And those are the standards by which we are held accountable. One final verse from Romans. Verses 1 through 3 of chapter 2. Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgments on one another you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. How do we know that we have God's law written on our hearts, some sense and standard of his law written on our hearts, is that we have a judgment system ourselves. We are always using some sort of judgment standard. Verse 2, we know that the judgment of God widely falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, that you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? The practical, the practice, the principle in scriptures is that you will be judged by the standard by which you used on others. Thus, the classic passage that people throw in our face as Christians about judgment, let me turn it on its head. Matthew 7, verse 1 and 2 says this, Judge not, lest you be judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured against you. You know, it's so ironic when people say, hey, don't judge. Because what are they doing? They're judging. And so what are they doing? They're saying, hey, don't judge. And then they're going to be held standard by the standard that says, hey, no one is supposed to judge. And God's going to hold them by the standard by that that they have just held somebody else to. God's going to come and say, hey, um, look, you see this day where you said no one should judge? Oh, yeah, you judge somebody. Here's what, we, what the scriptures are saying. You're only going to be judged on this criteria. Have you done what you know? Whatever truth you know, no matter where you've lived, no matter what century, no matter what truth you know, even if it's just the golden rule, whatever truth, that it, even if it's just the heart of hearts that you, the Spirit has dwelled upon in your conscience, and the last day, what's going to happen is what you know, the, very, the few things, even if they're very few, will look you in the eye and say, you knew and you didn't do it. You didn't live up to your very own standard, no matter how limited it is. Francis Schaeffer, the great Christian thinker, so this, he puts it another way. His illustration is that, well, we, if you can imagine this way, he says, we all have an invisible tape recorder hung around our neck. And it's, every, it's what's recording every time we say to somebody else, you ought or you shouldn't. Those are judgment statements. And what Schaefer is saying in this metaphor is that everybody has a standard of right and wrong that we use against others. Everybody has some knowledge of the truth. And what God's going to do on the final day is he's going to take that tape recorder off of our necks And he's going to say, listen, you didn't know the gospel and you didn't know the Ten Commandments, but I'm going to hold you by this standard right here. So let's see. And he's going to hit play. And he's going to go, okay, did you live up to that standard and that standard and that standard? Can you live up to your own standards for righteousness? None is righteous, not even one. Not even in our own eyes. Not even by our own feeble standards. Now do you see that judgment is a real problem? Not only is judgment necessary, It is a significant problem. You see, we're stuck between a rock and a hard place. Here's the rock. There is a judgment day when we are without hope because we're all sinners, even by our own measly standards. The hard place is if there's no such thing as judgment, then there is no judgment, no justice, or even meaning in this life. So which will you choose? The gospel provides a third way, though. And here's our third point. Jesus' judgment is our salvation. Going back to Psalm 7, verses 6 through 8, I'll read verse 6 through 8 and then 10 and verse 17, so jumping around. David, the psalmist says this, Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies. Awake from me, you have appointed a judgment. Let the assembly of the peoples be gathered about you. Over it, return on high. The Lord judges the peoples. 
Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to the integrity that is in me. My shield, verse 10, is with God, who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation, indignation every day. And finally, verse 17, I will give to the Lord the thanks due to his righteousness, and I will sing praise to the name of the Lord Most High. What the psalmist in Psalm 7 is talking about is that God is a mighty warrior king who protects the righteous through what? Judgments. The proposition of the Old and New Testament, the biblical narrative, is that God saves his people through judgments. When God removes the people of Israel in Egypt, what does he do? about by judging Egypt. When the people of Israel have sinned and God sends them into captivity throughout their history, they cry out to God and they repent of their sins. How does God bring about their salvation? Judging the nations. The judgment of God is something that the Old Testament people of God always look forward to because they believe that God's judgment would bring for them the day of salvation. The psalmist here, is, it's amazing that they would escape that judgment, isn't it though? Do you see the audacity of what the psalmist says? Judge me according to my righteousness and my integrity. Judgment, judgment is salvation only for the righteous. But how can we do that? How can we claim such a thing? How can we claim to be saved by God's judgment? Because in so doing, we're saying we're going to be right, called and declared righteous on the day of God's judgments. Well, to that, to understand that, we have to look to Jesus. John 12, turn your Bibles over there. We're turning the corner towards home. Verses 44 through 48, it says this. This is Jesus' last public sermon. The rest of the time in John, at least in John, all he's going to do is talk to his disciples. And he says this, and Jesus cried out, verse 44. I'll get back to that because that's important. Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light. So whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge but to do what? To save the world. The one who rejects me, though, and does not receive my words as a judge, the word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. just want to point out a couple things in rapid fire here from John 12. First, at the end of verse 48, what Jesus says is that there is going to be a coming judgment day. And Jesus says that it's by his words that we will be judged. In other words, he will be the judge. He will be God the Father's representative who will come to judge us at his second coming. But then I want you to see in verse 44 why Jesus came for the first time. In verse 44, what does, he, what does it say? And Jesus did what? He cried out. This is so much different than the way in which we proclaim judgment, O church. What is he doing here when he proclaims that there's a coming judgment day? He's weeping for his people, for men and women who don't know him, because he longs for them to avoid the second coming, the second judgment, the, day, the judgment of his second coming. There we go. He's crying out for them to believe. And then in verse 47, why does it say he has come the first time? Why? So that they might receive salvation. So they may escape the judgment that is coming in the second coming. At the second coming, Jesus will indeed be judged, but he has had a first coming. He has had a first advent where he brought salvation. But, he's, but the question is, in his first coming, how did he make us righteous? How do guilty men become innocent? How do unrighteous men become righteous before God? Here's the answer. As it always has been, through judgment. Through judgment. You know there was a day in which your sins, if you believe in Jesus, have been proclaimed guilty. There has already been a guilty verdict that has been attached to your sins and to you. But we didn't receive the judgment. 
Our record was sat on the table before God the Father and before the judge, and we were declared guilty. All that we have done and all that we are, every unclean thing, every terrible thought, every false motivation was before him for him to see, and it was declared wretched. But we weren't there. Who was? John 19, Jesus stands on trial before Pilate. In verse, 19, in verse 13 of John 19, that Pilate sat down on the judgment seat. This is the audacity of the gospel, that the innocent judge got down off the judgment seat, entered into the docks to be judged by a guilty man who knew that Jesus was innocent, but sent him to his death anyways. That is injustice. But through injustice, Jesus comes to bring us justice, to take the judgment that you and I deserved. And as we see, famous 20th century theologian Karl Barth says this, that Jesus is the judge who is judged for you and me. He was perfectly sinless. He was utterly righteous. He was perfectly just and good. And yet he was judged and declared to be unrighteous because he bore all of your unrighteousness. This is the gospel. The judge got down. He entered into your seat and he took your punishments. And what this means is if you believe him, if you believe in him, that your judgment is now in the past. It is not in the future. It has already been declared and the punishment has already been paid. It is done. Jesus took the verdict. Jesus took the consequences of hell that you and I deserved. And guess what? God is a God of justice. That means there is no double jeopardy. You don't get punished again. You are right before God. You are righteous in his sight. This is what Paul says. And here's what we get at the end of all things. This is what Paul says that we get if you believe and trust in Jesus. 2 Timothy 4.8 Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but to also to all those who love his appearing. Therefore, those that believe who love Jesus and trust in his work, who took your guilty verdict, who paid for it on the cross, On the day of judgment, what you will not hear is this. You will not hear the gavel fall and you declared guilty. Instead, you will hear the gavel fall and you will be declared righteous. That's the truth of Jesus' second coming for you who believe. Two quick thoughts. I have too many applications and we've got to be done. The first and clear one is this. As you need to be made right with God by believing and trusting in Jesus. Psalm 7, verses 10 through 12 says this, My shield is with God who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge, a God who feels indignation every day. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. These are severe words in the midst of the gospel, the good news, but I bring them to you as a call to repent. If you've never trusted in Jesus, if you're trying to make yourself right before some standard that you don't even know exists, the goodness of God is that he is a God of second chances. Over and over again, what are we told about God? He is slow to anger. He is steadfast in love. Now, I cringe to use that term just a little bit. Because in our culture, in our society, we have made second chances a right. We've lost the beauty of it. We've lost the beauty of the fact that we don't deserve them. And yet there was one who came to earth. When he, Jesus came to earth, he could have, in, by every right, could have come to slaughter to all peoples for being unrighteous, for rejecting him. But that's not what he does. In the gospel, he tells us that we are a people without excuse, deserving judgment or wrath, but he calls us to come to himself and says, here, I offer you my salvation. 
We're going to close there. I was going to say this. If you have belief, know this truth, you've already been judged. And you're declared right right now before God the Father. Therefore, if you can't get a job, if employer after employer says you are not worthy of whatever, take comfort in the fact that before God the Father, you are now worthy and acceptable. When the world says you are going to be on the wrong side of history, God declares you right. When the devil shows up and says you are guilty of condemnation and worthy of condemnation, look to the cross and it says you are righteous. I'm going to read to you the Heidelberg Catechism, which is a question and an answer. I'm going to read it for you. I'm going to have you stand and give the answer after I've read it through. So listen to it, and then you can know it more fully and say it more gustily. Here's the question. What comfort is there that Christ shall come to judge? There's comfort in the judgment of Christ. What comfort is there that Christ shall come to judge? And here's the answer of the Heidelberg Catechism, that the one who comes to judge is the very same person who previously came to be judged for me and has removed all curse from me. Will you stand? I'm going to ask the question. I'm going to ask you guys as a congregation to state the answer. If you believe, if you can believe that. So brothers and sisters, here's the question. What comfort is there that Christ shall come to judge? That the one who comes to judge is the very same person who previously came to be judged for my sake and has removed all curse from me.